turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. How many have been watching the news and seeing the events that have been going on around us? You can see political changes going on. You can see alignments and uh, and alliances happening. You're starting to see formations of world powers again. It almost takes you back to the Roman Empire, uh, watching Europe come together and have the Euro dollar and all the things that are happening in this world. And I want to talk about this very mystical book. Uh, the amazing thing about the Bible is there are different authors of the Bible, over 40 authors of the Bible. Ultimately, it has one author, and who's that? God. But through the uniqueness of personality, God uses authors to be inspired to write to different audiences. And so when you read the Bible, you can't read the Bible as if every book is written to the same person. Sometimes not only is there a different audience, there is a different agenda, maybe a different focus or perspective. And sometimes knowing the audience can help you understand or unravel the meaning of a text. So one of the most mystical, mysterious books of the Bible is the book of Revelation. Let me see your hands if you have struggled reading the book of the Revelation. All right. Pretty much all of you are here for the very same reason. You either want to know more, you're curious, or you've tried reading this book and you have failed. Let me see those that feel like you have failed grasping the deep meaning of this book. And be honest, it's okay. It might be the same hands that go up. So I want to... uh, Tonight, demystify the ancient Jewish wisdom of this uh, apocalyptic writing and found in the book of Revelation. And what you'll find from especially my perspective, being a rabbi trained to study the Torah, trained to study the prophets, trained to study the royal writings of David and Solomon and books like Esther and Ruth and all of the history of Israel, I realize God is just as focused on Israel as I am as a rabbi. Because in studying Israel's history, I realize that Israel is the prophetic time clock of God's plan and purposes. I realize that America, although we are a great nation, we're supposed to be a nation under God. How many know we need to hit our knees again and become that great nation again? Ultimately, it is not the ultimate focus of prophecy. And sometimes we try to go to different prophecy conferences or end-time teachings because we're trying to find out where does America fit in the Bible? Where does America fit in prophecy? But remember, 1776, America, a really young nation, came into existence because they understood that God had blessed Israel The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had blessed his people. And no matter what comes upon Israel, God always rescues, saves, redeems, regathers the remnant of the 12 tribes. And he brings them back to their land time and time again as they are right now. How many know what happened in 1948? Does anybody know? Can you shout it out? What what people became a nation again? I can't hear you. I can't hear you. So when you understand that Israel became a nation in 1948, then you will understand this psalm. Please write this down. This should be on your prayer list. Psalm 122, verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And it says that you will prosper if you love her. 
speaking of Jerusalem, which is really the capital of Israel. It is the center focus of God when he even speaks of prayer. When God gave David a heart to worship him, he desired to build God a temple for his presence. Now, how many know that David did not build God a temple? David wanted to build a temple, but because he was a man of war and blood was on his hands, there was even an, as an incident. Do you remember the story of Bathsheba and uh, the little looky-loose spirit that David had? And uh, how many know one look is uh, a wonder of God's glory, but two looks is called lust? And, and he got a little bit in trouble, even though he was a man of God. And that one time, he probably regretted that second look. Because that second look got him in trouble, and he wanted to build God a temple, but yet... To have Bathsheba, he actually put her husband on the front lines of battle after he tried to convince him to go home and sleep with his wife so that the the new baby coming into the world would not be known as his. And how many know you can't cover up your sin? You just got to deal with your sin. You got to just admit it to God. And the Jewish people have taught us year after year, Jewish festival after Jewish festival, how to have true repentance. Now, you might not realize this as a Christian, but Christians have a lot to learn from the Jews. Because the Bible is a Jewish book written by Jewish authors. I told you over 40 different authors. And over 1,500 years of Jewish history, the books of the Bible were written from Genesis all the way to the final book we're studying tonight, which is what? Revelation. So when you talk about this Bible, I really believe that believers today, whether you're Jewish or not, do we have any Jewish believers in the house? Anybody Jewish here tonight? Let me see. I'll put my hand up. Anybody Jewish? All right. A few of you are Jewish. You have Jewish blood. All right. Good. You represent the remnant tonight within this congregation. How many know that you come from one of the other nations in the category of Gentiles or of some other ethnicity? All right. No one else admits that? How many people are just, do you say, I'm not Jewish? Let me see. Let me see your hands. Now, leave your hands up if you're Hispanic. I could probably convince you in a matter of 15 minutes that you're all Jewish. And you are Spanish Jews out of the last verse of the book of Obadiah that says, those from Sephrod, which is known theologically as Spain, they will come back to the Negev, which is in Jerusalem, which is in Israel near Jerusalem. And it's God promising that the Jews that were brought by Rome to Spain will be prophesied in the last days to come back to their homeland, Israel. And by the floodgates opening up, all of the Spanish Jewish people are doing DNA tests. They're coming back and they're going to Israel and they're making what we call Aliyah, immigration back to Israel, to go back to the land, not the lowland, but the highland, going up to the mountain of the Lord. Now, what significance does this have for you and I? Well, whether you're Jewish or not, you need to know that that's a fulfillment of prophecy. And if God is fulfilling prophecy to not only bring German, Polish, Russian Jews from Central and Eastern Europe back home to Israel, but God is bringing Ethiopian Jews back. He's bringing back um, um, uh, Puerto Rican Jews and, and, and Cuban Jews and Mexican Jews back to the land of their forefathers. Then God is reuniting the 12 tribes. Even Jews from India were found. Asian looking Jews are in Israel right now, accepted by the rabbinate of Israel, and they're accepted as Jews from the tribe of Manasseh. You know what this says? For thousands of years, the Jews in the northern part of Israel were lost 
not so much to their own identity, but lost to their faith. And when they got lost to their faith, they became lost to their identity. And they were kind of scattered into the nations, and they started worshiping other gods. But God is bringing back all the twelve sons of Jacob, and the son descendants of Isaac, and the descendants of Abraham, back to their promised land. You can get excited over that. Go ahead. What that means is, if God can fulfill bringing Israel back to the land of promise, then he will send the Messiah. Because the Messiah will not come till his precious Jewish people are back in the land that he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You need to be praying, Sha'alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Now, you can't do it in Hebrew, but you can do it like this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let me hear you say it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Say it again. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. If you go a day without praying for the peace of Jerusalem, could you be stopping your prosperity? Because God promised Abraham that you will be blessed and I will make your name great and you'll be a great nation and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those that actually the Hebrew says even disregard you or curse you, even push you to the side. How many know the uh, Spanish Inquisition should have never happened? The the pogroms should have never happened to our Jewish people. And the Holocaust should have never happened. Can I get an amen? And if we haven't learned anything from uh, human history, we should learn that racism, anti-Semitism, terrorism should be removed from the face of the earth. And the greatest thing that I'm looking forward to is when the Prince of Peace comes, he's going to restore peace back to the earth and men with weapons of war will beat them into pruning hooks and begin to plow the land and like Israel who went from a desert to a fruitful plain, all of the world will be like the Garden of Eden. All of the world will be a paradise of peace and we will have a messianic rule and reign of the Messiah and he will rule and reign with you and I for a thousand years until we set everything in order and go into eternity without any war, without any sickness, without any sorrow. Are you looking for that day? I get excited just talking about the days that we're in. Because when I was a young boy, I remember watching Thief in the Night. How many remember that old movie? The the teachers would turn the lights off and uh, they didn't even give you popcorn. They would start rolling that old film and the projector would start going. It'd make a lot of noise. Remember those old projectors? And all of a sudden, Thief in the Night came on. It was all about the Messiah coming as a thief in the night. And I remember being a little scared. And luckily, my first grade teacher taught me the book of Revelation. First grade. And we had to draw all the drawings out. In eighth grade, my eighth grade teacher in the same school taught us the book of Revelation. So in first grade and eighth grade, I already had a great working knowledge of every scene of the book of Revelation. And what I remember is there were certain symbolic pictures and images that just like stuck to my brain like it was a, a suction of an octopus holding on to something. I, I felt like I was just a, like a piranha, just absolutely loved the book of Revelation. When I found out that John, who wrote the book, was actually quoting all of the Hebrew prophets of Israel, you might know those books as the Old Testament, to a Jewish person there, the Hebrew scriptures or the Tanakh. When I understood that John was quoting Isaiah, and John was quoting Jeremiah, and John was quoting Ezekiel, and was quoting Daniel, and quoting Zechariah and Zephaniah, all of a sudden I began to throw myself into the meat of the book, and that is from Genesis 
to Malachi. Now, let me see those that have physical Bibles in the house. Let me see your Bibles. Let me see your Bibles. I, I won't do what they did to me in youth group where they made you do the Bible quizzing. Remember, you had to jump up when they gave the verse and whoever got it, you got like a prize. But let me see your, keep your Bible open. Now, let's see if we can find the section between, in a Christian Bible, what is the old and new, between Malachi and Matthew. Between old and new, Malachi and Matthew. All right. Tell me which side of your Bible is weightier. The Old Testament is weightier. So why have we as believers in Messiah been living off a quarter of our spiritual diet? Because if I gave you a dollar, how many of you would uh, let me keep 75 cents of it and then you are only left with 25 cents a quarter? You would reject that, right? If your employer did that to you, how many know you would like raise Cain and want to kill Abel all over again? If somebody said, I'm going to take 75% out of your check and I'm going to give you 25%, how many of you would be happy with that? No, no. Shake your head. No, no. Shaking my head. Come on. And you would not do it. Why do we do it with our Bibles? I hope if you don't learn anything tonight, you learn to have a hunger for the Word of God. Because ultimately, it's not what we think. It's what we believe. It changes what we think, and what we think is what we do. In Jewish thought, it all starts in the mind with thought, then it moves to the lips, word, and then it moves to the action, deed. So in thought, word, and deed, if we're going to be a disciple of the Messiah, if we're going to walk in his footsteps, we need to think right, therefore speak right, and therefore do right. Because our thinking is what messes up our speaking, because our thinking is probably what we believe. Because tell me what you think about the most, I'll tell you what you believe. Tell me what comes out of your mouth the most, and I'll tell you what you think. And tell me what you do the most, and I'll tell you what you love the most. So how many have a devotion time with God every morning, and don't lie to the rabbi? Okay, a few of you. Okay, how many wait till the afternoon? How many try to do it at nighttime before you go to bed? Now, be honest, some of you are not saying anything, so let me, let me do it again. Morning? Okay, now everybody has devotion in the morning. Love it, I love it. Uh, that, that just means you're encouraged to do that, right? How many do it sometime in the afternoon or early evening? Okay. How many do it right before you go to bed? Okay, keep your hand up if you do it right before you go to bed. Hopefully you put your hand up all three times. But if you only did it before you go to bed, how successful are you to finish your reading if you only read at night before you go to bed and you start getting a little what? Sleepy, okay? So I encourage you to do as Moses taught us in Deuteronomy, that we're to meditate on four different times. When we get up in the morning, not only when we go to bed, but we walk out of our house and we come back home, we're to meditate and chew on the scriptures all during the day. What if you treated the Bible like breakfast, lunch, and dinner? You didn't miss a meal. Because I've been to lunch with some of you. And you've been to my house too, some of you. And you don't miss a meal. So guess what? If you could eat voraciously at your meal, how many know you should even be more like a piranha when it comes to the word of God as your manna? You should get it first thing in the morning, continue to chew it throughout the day, and then have a recap at night. Okay? So one of the things I want to do is I want to actually talk about in these four weeks different things. Uh, I'll get into that in a second. I want to first talk about what is the book of Revelation. And we have to ask the question, what is it? Some ask me the question, what is it? I'm so glad you asked. I have to then answer your question with a question because I wouldn't be Jewish if I didn't. And so you say, what is it? Well, I ask the question. The book of Revelation, is it a book of the rapture? It is, the, is it the revelation of the rapture? I would have to give you an answer, no. Second, I would say, 
Is it a book of the revelation of the tribulation? And the answer would again be no. I'm going to even ask you a question. Is it the revelation of the second coming? I still have to say no. Because that's not the total focus of the book. Whether the rapture, the tribulation, and the second coming. Now trust me, most of you have come from one of those three questions. You want to know if it's the book of the revelation of the rapture because you want to know when it's going to happen. Throw your hands up if you want to, if you want to admit that. All right, right, right. You also want to know the question is about the tribulation because you want to know about the tribulation. You want to know has it started yet? And most of you want to know if when the blood moon happens this fall, uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, you want to know, is the tribulation period going to start? Let me see your hands if you're curious and have that question answered. All right, so I don't even need to ask you questions for Q&A because I already know what your questions are. So right off the top, we realize it's not really focused on the rapture, the tribulation, or the second coming. What it really claims to be is the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. And I'm going to give you his Hebrew name. His Hebrew name is Yeshua, which means the same as Joshua, which also means salvation or the Lord God is our salvation. And so when you look at the Messiah, one of the things the Messiah is believed to, to come and do is to save his people. So God has to send the Messiah, number one, to save Israel. Sadly enough, all those that were of the nation of Israel when he came the first time didn't believe that he was the one. So the writer John is specifically focused on proving that he is the Messiah. Say Messiah. The Hebrew word for Messiah is Mashiach. You don't have to write this down. I'll give it to you in some notes later. I'll give you an actual whole vocabulary of terms next week. I just want to kind of see if you come back. Because I don't want to give out handbooks to people that are going to leave and never come back. So I don't want to scare you tonight. We're just going to focus on a few basic things. How many appreciate that from your rabbi? Very good. I'm glad you've stayed so far. So we understand that Yeshua is the same name as Joshua, who, we, who was the prophet after Moses. Remember the guy that went into the promised land? He was one of the two, like Caleb. Both him and uh, uh, Caleb and Joshua believed they could take the promised land. The other ten didn't believe. Do you know Israel split on that very same ratio? Ten tribes in the north split from two in the south. And the two in the south followed the way of worship that was established from David and Solomon on Mount Moriah, which is the Jerusalem Temple Mount area. And the rest were scattered into the nations because of false Baal worship of pagan idols. Do you know what's so sad? Our world still worships pagan idols. All around, there's symbols. I'll show you next week some pictures of some very hideous images that our world uses. And it's just kind of like seen as, oh, it's just advertisement. No, no, no. They're pagan images. The same gods that Israel was tempted to worship are still around us. Sadly enough, one of them is our dollar bill. In God we trust, but which God? Because sometimes we'll trust our money more than we trust the God who gave us the money. So we need to check our worship thermometer and see how hot we are when it comes to worshiping the real God. And I have to tell you, he is the God of Israel because he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you are a Christian, you should be thanking Israel that they taught the world that there's only one God. 
And if it wasn't for Israel, we wouldn't have the real God. We wouldn't have the right Bible. We wouldn't have any of the history to learn from. We wouldn't have the beautiful stories of the Bible, like the Garden of Eden. How many know Noah saving his family on an ark with eight people on a boat? We wouldn't have that story. We wouldn't have Abraham believing and trusting God and him becoming the father of our faith. We wouldn't have Isaac who taught us how to tithe and sow into the land just like Abraham his father did. We wouldn't have Jacob. Without Jacob, there wouldn't be 12 tribes. Without the 12 tribes, we wouldn't have tribes like Levi that gave us the priesthood. Do you know even the Catholic Church modeled their priests after the Jewish priests of Israel? The Kohanim, the priesthood? They modeled after that. Have you ever seen a, a Catholic priest walk around or walk down the aisle with a censer in his hand? Do you know that was only commanded that the tribe of Levi, of the sons of Aaron, could have that censer and take hot coals off the altar and fumigate the Holy of Holies? Now, I don't know if you know this, but certain Catholic churches and certain Christian churches actually modeled their church where the pulpit area was the Holy of Holies. And when you came through the church doors, you were in the outer court. And you almost had levels of leadership to get to the inner circle. Uh, same thing even with other religions like the Mormon religion. You have to be a part of the priesthood. There's like this hierarchy to go into. Aren't you glad that God calls all of us his royal priesthood? Well, I have to shock you for a second. That was Israel's title. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he says in Exodus 19, 4 through 6, he says, you know what, if you accept this covenant I'm giving you, you will be my holy nation. You will be a peculiar, special, treasured people unto me. We call it Am Segula. It's saying that God is saying that we're a jewel amongst all the nation of coals. We're jewels. That means we were a coal too, but he cut us like a diamond. And when he cut us enough through every exile and every enslavement and every, every historical event that's ever happened to the Jewish people, they still shine today. Isn't it amazing? Every time Pharaoh tried to kill the Jews, they would multiply. Every time one of the Caesars would try to, to kill the Jews, or Alexander the Great or his people tried to snuff out the Jewish people, he never was able to succeed. Why? Because God made a promise to Abraham. And so everything within Jewish history, you and I get to learn from it. And whether you're Jewish, or you're Gentile, or you're a believer today of one thing or another, you owe it to Israel for being who they are, a light to the whole world. Okay, I, thought, I heard five amens. If you're going to learn anything from this rabbi, you're going to learn to have a love for Israel. Pastors all over the world are saying, i got to get connected to a rabbi. And I had this hashtag I always put out, everybody needs a rabbi. And so if you want to hashtag anything, go ahead and hashtag everybody needs a rabbi. Because I really believe what God is doing is he's restoring the Hebraic roots of our faith. He's restoring the deep understanding of Genesis all the way to Malachi. And even the Greek scriptures that we have in our in our uh, libraries, in our museums of the New Testament, it originally was written from Hebrew thought. So I always say everybody's got to put on their spiritual yarmulke, their kippah, to be able to have the mind of the Messiah. You want to think like he did? You need to think as he did. You need to do as he did. You need to become as he was. You need to walk as he walked. And if you walk in his footsteps, you will be like him. How many want to be more like their Savior, their Redeemer? Amen. Well, guess what? You'll have to go down not the Romans road for that. You'll have to go down the Jerusalem road. I always tell Christians, don't try to take my precious Jewish people down the Romans road. They've never read the book. It's true. Most Jews have not read the book of Romans. 
And rightfully so. It sounds pagan. Romans, right? Go to Rome. You know, actually, it's funny because a lot of Jewish people uh, love Italians, especially Frank Sinatra. They love Italy. They love they love those places. They're ancient. In fact, there's something more culturally relatable to Israel and Italy than you know. They all have olive oil in their meals. They drink wine from the vine. Come on. They live off the land. They're ancient people. They're old school. They come from the old country, and they do things very similar. Same thing with the Greeks. Their cultures were very similar. But it's funny how we actually fight about our differences instead of appreciating our similarities. Your neighbor, maybe their neighbor's a Muslim. You know what? Not only should you pray for the person who's a Muslim to understand who Jesus really is, but he's not just a prophet come to kill the Jews, because that's what the Muslims have told the Jews. The Muslims have told the Jews that when Jesus comes back, he's going to kill all the Jews. Do you think that's going to give uh, good relations between Jews and Muslims and Christians? Not at all. Although they, although they all claim Abraham some way as their father. Starting with Israel, they have the real right to call him father, Abraham. And Christians actually are engrafted in as wild olive branches into the family tree of Israel, and they can spiritually call Abraham their father. How many spiritually call Abraham your father? Let me see your hands of those. If you're a believer, you should be calling Abraham your father. Well, then act like him. Walk as he walked, do as he did, because he taught his children how to walk in the way of the Lord. And also, of course, Islam. Through another son, not Isaac, and not through Jacob, but through Ishmael, through Hagar, an Egyptian woman, Completely different culture. Islam claims that Muhammad's lineage goes back to Abraham and Ishmael. So funny because actually Ishmael, who was not the promised son, and Esau, who was also not the son that got the birthright or the blessing, they married into each other's family line. And the Edomites and the present-day Palestinians, they all have a connection back to Abraham, but through a different lineage. When God said to the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's where the promise and the covenant's going to come. And guess where Jesus came from? That same family line. So if you believe in Jesus, or as a Messianic believer, you believe in Yeshua, or you're Spanish and you believe in Jesucristo, guess what? It's the same person. And I'm going to share with you things that even the Jewish community can appreciate that he did fulfill many of the things that the prophet said the Messiah would fulfill. My job, though, is not to push Jesus down the throat of a Jew, and neither should you. What you should do is live the life that Jesus died for you to live and love your precious Jewish people in a way that shows them that you are brothers in the Lord instead of trying to convert them and stuff them in ovens and burn them in, 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 in places and tell them, you know, turn or burn. Guess what? Don't say that to a Jewish person. Turn or burn. That brings back the Holocaust. Instead, love your neighbor as yourself, whether they're a Muslim, whether they're Jewish, whether they're atheists. I don't care what background, what lifestyle they live. Love people and people will change. But they'll only change is what if what you're living and what they're seeing in your life is actually real. So this is not a book about. The rapture. This is not so much a book about tribulation. This is not a book just about the second coming. This is a book to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what I'd like to do is then talk about the audience and the author. I'll start with the author. The author is the youngest disciple of the Messiah out of 12 who was trained by the master himself about the end of days. How many have ever read Matthew 24? And this youngster of the group, he would have remembered with the best memory because he was the youngest. 
How I many as you get older, you start forgetting a few things. He would have, as the babe, the John the Beloved, he would have been the one that in his latter days, he could actually write about the very teachings that Jesus taught. Now, this is what's interesting about Matthew 24, and we'll reference it next week. Um, Matthew 24 tells us that the disciples came to Jesus, and they asked him these signs that you're talking about. Jesus said, well, you know, not one stone of the temple will be left upon another. He was actually prophesying, just as the Hebrew prophets did, that the temple would be destroyed in Jerusalem. He says, there's coming a day where not one stone will be left upon another. In fact, to, to this day, we have nothing but broken, destroyed rubble and stones in Jerusalem. I went in 2007. I went again in 2014. I would love to go with all of you next year. Wouldn't that be amazing? And I'm, I'm talking about 2016. I would absolutely love to go next fall, 2016. I would love it. How many would actually plan to go? What if we could sign you up in the next couple of weeks to be uh, in an interest group to want to go to Israel? Wouldn't that be amazing if we all went to Israel? And then if we get the best price, too, that would be even more amazing. So if you look at um, Israel today, there is no temple. And Jesus prophesied it, but he wasn't the first. All of the prophets talked about that the temple would be destroyed in troublous times. And it was by the Roman Empire, 70 A.D. Guess when John wrote his gospel? 90 A.D. Which means he would have seen the destruction of the temple. He would have been cast out like all Jews and imprisoned. And he was actually imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos. So here he learned about the, the end of days by his own teacher and rabbi. And received special revelation in this book by a visitation through prophetic symbols, signs, and seasons. So over the next couple of weeks, today we're going to start with some simple symbols. Next week we're going to talk about the seals of the book of Revelation. We're then going to go into week three dealing with seasons and talk about all the seasons and Jewish festivals and holidays, like the fall ones coming up, because all of you want to know about the blood moon. I know that's why you showed up. My dear friend, Rabbi Jonathan Kahn, who is a part of the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, he wrote the book, The Harbinger, and uh, I remember him before he wrote the book. I met him. He was the nicest rabbi. Never knew he was going to blow up all over the world and become such a famous rabbi. And uh great man of God in New York, was a missionary all over the world, and uh, I remember getting my first copy of it, and I'm like, oh, that's my buddy right there. I have a picture of myself with Jonathan Kahn. I'm thinking, such a nice guy, simple guy, but had such an amazing revelation of how Israel's history seemed to come to pass again when 9-11 happened and the Twin Towers came down. Well, when that happened, I was in New York with Pastor Ben and his family on, on holiday, as we say in, in Australia, on holiday. Uh, we were in New York the winter right before 9-11. In fact, Pastor Ben had just gotten married and was on his honeymoon when it happened. And it's amazing that I was able for the last time to see a perfect view of the world and the windows of the world and the top of the Twin Towers. I remember that. When it came crashing down, my heart, from the memory of being up at the top of those towers, it plummeted. And I remember Pastor Obed's cousin uh, being concerned that her husband was in those Twin Towers. Guess what? He didn't go to work that day because a Krispy Kreme donut was saying, hot now, hot now. And she was never more happy about those Krispy Kreme donuts because it saved his life. But for hours, no phone communication. She didn't know her husband was still alive. But God had diverted him. It was like the whole office decided to go for Krispy Kreme donuts. That was the best thing they ever did for breakfast, let me tell you. 
And, and I think about the tragedy that happened and how all over the world, synagogues, cathedrals, churches, places of, pr- of prayer, places of worship, people of faith began to fall on their face before God and go to places of worship and prayer and say, we got to turn our churches and our congregations into a house of prayer for all nations again. We need to pray like never before. How long did that last? Before 9-11 just turned into a memorial site or a ground zero or a place to rebuild, or a place for things to be built there that I'm not so happy about. But anyway, I'll leave it alone. And we can't forget about what happened in history. You can't forget about it. So here you have this guy who not only learned from Jesus himself, the rabbi, that walked from Galilee and Nazareth, Capernaum, all the way to Jerusalem, to be with the scholars, but he prophesied that this very city would go through destruction. It happened in John's lifetime. What if you were to actually see these events come to pass in your lifetime? What book would you write about for another generation to come to read? How many know a prophet has a high responsibility? He's not just a prophet to speak the word of God, but thus saith the Lord. He's also a seer. He, he sees things he would he wish he would never see. And what you need to know about John is he's not only a prophet of God in this book, but he's a seer. And the way he sees is through symbols, to signs, to seasons. I'll actually talk about the last week, week four, as the signs of his coming. How many of you want to know about the signs of the Messiah's coming? Whether you're Jew or Gentile, everybody is questioning right now, who is the Messiah, when is he coming, and everybody knows that in this special year called the Shemitah, something is happening in what's called the seventh year or sabbatical year in Deuteronomy 15.1. All of the slaves come out of bondage, And the land goes back to the original owner. And every seven years, the king of Israel would stand up and read from the end of Deuteronomy during the Feast of Sukkot, when the blood moon's going to happen. And there would be a release of all the old things of the last seven years. And the seven-year cycle is exactly what the tribulation period is. Seven years of a year of release. That when the Messiah comes at the end of that seven-year period, he will release all the captives. He will set Israel free. He'll set the captive free. He'll set the world free because he's going to bring in peace as the Prince of Peace. Are you looking forward to come? Good. I'm so glad. Now, we talked about the author. And you might have some questions. Write those questions down. I might take a few seconds to to give you those uh, tonight. And again, this is just an intro night. And in showing this, I want to make sure that it's, you're clear on some of these things. Audience number one, I believe, are the people that followed Messiah himself. Because in the Matthew 24 talk, he's talking to his own 12. Those 12 disciples made disciples of disciples, which means they became rabbis themselves to teach other people to be disciples. Because in the first century, the only people that are ever having disciples are rabbis. Aren't you glad your church has a rabbi? How many know you're ridiculed for your church having a rabbi? How I many know sometimes even the Jewish world says, Meshuggah, that's crazy. How does a church have a rabbi? But guess what? It's the best of both worlds. And all of the world, Christian churches and ministries are starting to get connected to rabbis. Look at John Hagee. John Hagee, give it up for John Hagee. He's connected with an Orthodox rabbi in his community, and they are best of friends. What if Jews and Christians could start getting along again? Wouldn't that be a novel idea? In fact, it would be the best novella ever. So audience number one, I believe, are the very believers in the Messiah. We call that the body of believers. You might call it the body of Christ. I would call it the body of Messiah himself. So what he was doing was gathering a group of disciples, of followers, that were going to follow him, that would learn from him. And one of the things he taught them is about the end of days. So that's the number one audience. What you see here is a symbol 
called the Messianic Seal of Jerusalem. What you might know is this is the first seal of what has become known as Christianity. This was sealed up in caverns and grottos for hundreds of years and was kept secluded by some of the Catholic Church to make sure that Roman Catholic Christians or believers did not know about their Jewish roots. Constantine wanted to strip all of Christianity, what was being named as a Greek term, Christian from Christ, meaning anointed one, our Messiah. He wanted to strip the faith of its Jewish understanding. I believe because of that, it is one of the reasons why the scroll of the book has been sealed to you and I. We don't understand it. How many have, could raise your hand again and say, that's me. I haven't understood the book of Revelation. Well, guess what? This is the first time you're learning it from a rabbi. No, it's true. How many of you have ever sat on a rabbi and have him teach you about the book of Revelation? How many would just put their hand up and say, never? So you should expect something fresh, something new, something different. I know you got notes on the subject. you got books on the subject. You maybe have even John Hagee's book on the subject. That's all great. But expect for the next four weeks to learn something new. So you got to put some new thinking caps on. you got to start thinking like a Jew would think. Imagine if you were one of the original 12 walking with Jesus, walking in, in the footsteps of the Messiah. And as the rabbis have always said, a good disciple is dusty from the dust of his rabbi. You know what that means? When they walked on the Jerusalem floor, the dust would rise up. The disciple that got the closest to him, that could emulate him, and could be a walking Torah a walking prophet just like him would not only be like him, but do what he did when he would leave or die. So when Jesus died, he says, the works I've done, greater works will you do right before his death. And what we see is that we are still following in those same footsteps, trying to be like him. So audience number one is the body of uh, believers in Messiah. Audience number two is actually the original audience of all prophecy. And that is the nation of Israel also including scattered tribes of Israel and the Jewish community as a whole. I actually do believe that there are rabbis that are starting to look at the New Testament for the very first time as Jewish books. And I think it's eye-opening to the world. I'll give you a book to look up. There's a book called The Kosher Jesus by Rabbi, Rabbi Shmuel Boteach. I could call him Shmuley because that's probably his nickname. Shmuel or Samuel Boteach would be his name in English. And he is known as the Hollywood rabbi, the Beverly Hills rabbi. He gets all the celebrities coming to him. He wrote this book called The Kosher Jesus, and he's an Orthodox Jew. What he said was, after 2,000 years of miscommunication between Christians and Jews, we should actually learn from each other, and we should accept Jesus back into our camp. We might, as Orthodox Jews, not might not believe be convinced that he's the Messiah. But he definitely was a good Jewish boy. He definitely grew up to be a good Jewish man, an Orthodox Jew, an observant Jew. He definitely became a great Jewish rabbi. I believe the best of the best. He also was known by many to be a great Jewish prophet. And I know Jewish people that say, well, he was probably a prophet. But like the prophets of the Old Testament, they were killed too. And you know what one person told me? They said, you know what? He probably could have been the Messiah. And I said, really? You say that? Sure, had Rome not have killed him. You know what she was saying to me? She was saying to me the opposite of what a lot of Jews got out of the passion for the Christ. They feel like they've been blamed for why Jesus died. How many know Jesus said, nobody took my life? I laid it down. I came for the sin of the whole world. He came to bring repentance to the whole world. He bring, He came to draw all of the world back to the one God. So when we look at Jesus in fresh eyes, we realize no one killed him. The Jews didn't kill him. 
They didn't even have the power of the death penalty that year. Only Rome had the power. But not even Rome killed him. In fact, when Pontius Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to release you? You know what Jesus said? He says, nobody has power except what's been given from above. So therefore, you can't even kill me. Therefore, he was not afraid, like a good Jewish rabbi, to speak his mind. And of course, answer a question with his question, with a question. Now, the third audience is one that's a little bit scary. And most of you have ever been scared about the book of Revelation. It's because of this very audience right here. So audience number one was the body of believers in Messiah. Audience number two is the nation of Israel, scattered tribes of Israel, and the Jewish community as a whole. Number three, the one that gets all the judgment is only this category. The kingdom of the Antichrist, or we could translate that Antichrist into false Messiah, which includes the world system, that includes its politics, its religious beliefs, its, its, its confusion about what's politically correct or not. The world system as we speak is becoming more and more dark. You and I should become brighter as the world gets darker. In fact, I'm going to encourage you not to walk out of here cursing the darkness you see, but instead shine the light. It's not about cursing the darkness. You can tell everybody how wrong they are. It's about shining the light. How many want to have a little more light in their life? A little more illumination. So let's start with the book. You ready to look at the book a little bit? I'm actually going to start with uh, verse, verse number one of chapter one of Revelation. This is the intro of the book. It says, this is the revelation of who? Jesus the Messiah, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must happen soon. What things? The things that must happen soon. Say it again. The things that must happen soon. Now, wait a minute. If John was writing this 2,000 years ago, and it must happen soon, the question is, why hasn't it happened yet? Well, what you should probably understand the word soon means quickly or rapidly without prior knowledge of it if you're asleep or unaware of its coming. So like a thief in the night, no one knows when the thief is coming. Therefore, he comes soon or quickly. He comes when there's an opportunity, when everybody's eyes are shut. Do you know what the book of Revelation means? In Greek, apocalypsis means an unveiling of the blinder on the eyes of those who can't see. So when light shines in your room, you pull the covers back, right? You get out of bed, you wake up, and you start your day, right? Do you know the church has been asleep? I said the church has been asleep. We've had our eyes closed to politics. We've had our ears closed. We're not listening to what's going on in our world. And because of that, our hearts are closed. And because our hearts are closed, our minds are closed to the understanding of these great writings. So if you go to the latter part of that verse, it says... Not only is it the things that must happen soon, but he says, he made it known by sending his messenger to his servant. One version says he made it symbolically known or he revealed through symbols through this messenger, which we know to be an angelic messenger. Uh, starting with Abraham, many have entertained angels unaware. When men showed up at Abraham's tent door, he was the first one that ever encountered an angel and thought it was a human. And so a good, hospitable man that uh, Abraham was, he tried to feed the angels. How funny. It even looks like in the text they're actually eating. I'm a little afraid that it didn't look like such a kosher diet because he brought them like uh, some ribeye steaks and some cheese, <laughs> some curds. It didn't seem like he separated his milk and meat. You know, the rabbis say, well, of course, because the guys weren't Jewish. Get said later. 
In other words, they thought the angels were Gentile uh, messengers or visitors that were coming to his door. So here's the thing we have to understand, that God used an angel to reveal these special symbols or symbolize or have metaphoric pictures of what the book of Revelation is all about. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Who testified about this message from God and the testimony about Jesus who? The Messiah. Look at the blessing if you read this book. Every single one of you are getting a double portion blessing tonight. Because you're not only reading it by yourself, you're reading it with each other. And it says, How blessed is the one who reads aloud. I'm going to encourage you for the next four weeks to read this book aloud and to not be afraid of it and to read it out loud because there's a blessing if you read it out loud and those who hear the words of this prophecy and obey what is written in it for the time is what? Near. If there's ever been a time where it's felt like the time is near, it's now. Verse number four says, from who? John. Who's his number one audience? To the seven churches in Asia. So, now remember I told you audience number one is who? The body of believers in Messiah. Now, what I want to dispel is there were no churches, per se, in the first century. There were no buildings like this one, or one with a steeple, or one with stained glass windows. There were no denominations like Baptists, Methodists, Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Catholic, uh, Seventh-day Adventist. None of these existed. What you had is what you had in the book of Acts. Jews who went faithfully to the synagogue on either Friday night or Saturday before sundown to keep what day? The Sabbath, one of the Ten Commandments. One of the top ten for me, I love it the most. Most of us keep nine out of ten. I wouldn't buy plates if it was nine out of ten out of the set and one was missing. How many know we shouldn't take one out of the set, but we should keep it all intact? And I encourage you, even if you don't keep the Sabbath the way I keep the Sabbath, at least turn your Saturday into a Sabbath rest. Even before you show up to serve on Sunday. What if you actually used your Saturday to have family time? You know what Jews do? On Friday night, they bless their children with Numbers 6, 24 to 26. And they bless their wife. The husbands bless their wife with Proverbs 31, starting with verse 10, that she's a virtuous woman. What if every woman was called a virtuous woman by her husband? And what if every child had a physical touch from their father, affectionately blessing them and telling them, son, you're blessed, and God's going to keep your blessings. He's going to shine his face upon you. He's going to be gracious to you. He's going to lift up his countenance upon you. He's going to give you peace. What if every dad did that to their children every week? What if everybody started their weekend that way? In Israel, it starts at 3 p.m. Shop owners are closing their, their shops down, and they're going home. They're buying flowers for their wife. Their, their wife has a beautiful white tablecloth on a beautiful Shabbat table for the Sabbath dinner, and there's two candles they're going to light to start the evening, how romantic, are called Shabbat candles, and they're going to have a wonderful meal where they talk the Word of God, they sing praises, they sing psalms, they, they have liturgy, they have all this beautiful interaction, and they talk about the readings of the Scriptures that they're studying that week. And what if everybody did that? to start their weekend. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. It would be a great idea. So the number one audience here is the seven churches. I will explain to you as we look next week who the seven churches are, what they represent, and we're going to do that correlating the seven churches with the seven seals of the covenant book that's unrolled in chapter 4 and chapter 5. So I encourage you to read at least all the way up to chapter 6 next week. How many can put that on their, their reading time, reading 1 through 6? Okay, I'm almost done. Let you out early tonight. So then it says, 
The seven churches in Asia, so obviously the focus is the ministry of John in Asia Minor. In fact, Ephesus, where he probably died, is in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey today. Has anybody been to Turkey? Has anybody been on a trip to see the seven uh, churches of Revelation, those seven regions? All right. Maybe, maybe we need to do a trip to Israel and to Turkey so we can do it all in one trip. That would be amazing. Talk about history there. And it says... May grace and peace be yours from the one who is, who was, and is to come. Speaking of God the Father. And also the Father revealed through the Son. Now watch this. He who was and is and is to come. The only one that could really claim that, first and foremost, is God the Father himself. But because we believe that Jesus was the word who was with the Father in the beginning, he is a reflection of the Father by his spoken word. His word was poured into a body, and his word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus can have the same quality essence as a son should have from his father. And obviously, in Hebrew thought, father doesn't mean so much physicality, but father means source. So God the Father is the source, and Jesus came to reveal, be an expression of the attributes and character of God his father. And it's funny, we also pray, our father, which art in heaven, come on, pray it, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. As it is in heaven. Give us this. Go ahead. <laughs> you can stop there. But this prayer is very Jewish. I can even pray it in Hebrew for you, and I won't do it right now. But if you pray this prayer, it's very messianic. It is literally praying for the messianic kingdom to come on earth, which is what Jews pray for, the messianic rule of the Messiah to come on earth and God's yoke of heaven to be over the students and disciples of those that will learn his word through the Torah, the prophets, and the writings and especially through the new teachings of the Messiah. This is the beauty of Scripture. Now, it also talks about, very strangely, from the seven spirits who are in front of his throne. But this is the one that throws most people. What do you mean seven spirits? Are these good spirits? Bad spirits? Are we talking about Casper the Friendly Ghost? No. This is actually a metaphoric term. And I'm going to show you, in, in, in next week, I'm going to show you the breakdown of this. I'll introduce you one facet of it in the next couple of minutes. Seven spirits who are before the throne. Let's jump to verse 7. Verse 7 says, look, read it with me. He is coming in the clouds. Say it again. He is coming in the clouds. Say it again. He is coming in the clouds. Now stop. This is one of the first prophets that John is quoting it is the book of Daniel write this down Daniel 7 13 I'm not going to read it tonight but go home and read Daniel 7 13 you actually have to read this book that's originally written in Hebrew and a little Aramaic because of the Babylonian exile where they learned Aramaic as a secondary language and this book John is quoting well he's not the only one that quoted it Jesus quoted it concerning himself so every time you see anything in scripture about Jesus coming back with clouds of heaven or clouds of glory, it's a direct quote of Daniel 7.13. Did you write it down? Good. Let's keep reading. Uh, it goes on to say, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Now, what would be the number one tribes you think this Jewish boy would be talking about? The tribes of Israel. Because Israel is the focus of prophecy. Remember? Even though he's revealing these things first to the seven churches or the messianic believers in Messiah, who is the second audience that we said is the original audience of all of prophecy? Israel. Yisrael. 
He who strives with God and becomes a prince with God, well, guess what? They are still in God's eyes, his chosen people in the apple of his eye, and they will rule and reign. And we should be praying that no one overcomes Israel and tries to divide the land, but Israel has a right to the Temple Mount. Israel has a right. The Jewish people have a right to pray in their most holy sight. They have a right to go wherever they want in the land that God promised to Abraham and to their forefathers. What if someone told you you couldn't go down the street to your own very house that's yours until you can't go there because I own that house now. Well, the devil's a liar. No, you don't. That's my house. How can you take away the house of worship the Jews have gone to for thousands of years and politically say, oh, let's just give half of it away? Oh, you can't go up there at the Temple Mount. You can only go down at, at the Wailing Wall area, the Kotel area, where you can just weep and wail and moan there. I'm so sick and tired of Jews just weeping and wailing and moaning for what used to be. I want to be like the young Israeli that is rising and saying, let's stop crying about what used to be. And let's start, start crying and asking the question, why haven't we rebuilt the temple in our days? Because the Messiah has to come back to a physical temple. In fact, the Antichrist has to defile the God of Israel in a physical temple in Jerusalem. If it's not built yet, we can't be in the tribulation period. It's got to be built. Guess what? Israel has every vessel of worship and piece of golden furniture and furniture of brass or copper and furniture of silver and utensils to use to rebuild the temple right now as we speak. The only thing they don't have access to is where they want to build it, which is on the Temple Mount, where the gold dome of the rock is, which is a, a mosque dedicated to Muhammad. The place where Solomon built the temple, you're going to put a mosque there that's not even your place of worship? The Al-Aska Mosque is the real one that they uh, worship at a little over um, in another area, but uh, of the same uh, Temple Mount area. But the actual gold dome is just a memorial place they don't even use. They actually disrespect it, let trees grow there and play soccer ball there and, and give people just uh, deface it. And it's not even holy to them. Went to the Jew, they're crying at the bottom of it saying, please let me go up on my temple mount. They're arrested. Jews are arrested if they go even pray or let their lips move that like they're praying on the temple mount. What if someone told you you can't pray to your God anymore? And you wonder why Jewish people are a little bit upset? But yet I've never seen a Jew strap bombs on himself. So who's politically correct now? Now, I'm almost done. Watch this. In verse uh, number I'm going to jump up. Well, verse 8, it says, uh, the Alpha and the Omega, uh, it declares who was it is uh, and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm going to look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, I am John, your brother and partner in oppression. One version says tribulation. He says, in the kingdom, in patience that comes because of Jesus, I was on an island called Patmos, or Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony about Jesus as Messiah. So why was he in prison? Because early believers would not stop preaching that Jesus was the Messiah to the Jewish people. But it wasn't the Jews that put him there. It was Rome. Because the threat was, did you say the Messiah is a king? We have no king but Caesar. So Rome was threatened by the Jewish people. In fact, it was Rome that cast the Jews out. And so when you think about this, it's very important that you realize that he's in prison there, not by the Sanhedrin, not by the Jewish people, but by Rome. And Rome is the one that has him on this prison island, um, the Isle of Patmos. Reminds me of that movie with Tom, Tom Hanks. What do they call that movie where he's like kicking the soccer ball? 
castaway. He was basically like a castaway. Let's look at verse 18 as I close. Uh, verse 18 of the book, it says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. Sounds like a good Jewish prayer. And have the keys of hell and death, meaning he overcame it or conquered it. Write the things which you have what? Seen. The things which are, and the things which must or, or, or shall, which shall be hereafter. Now remember, we already read the verse to write down the things that are coming hereafter that are coming very soon. You're listening to Solace Radio. We're glad you came here to find solace.